God of hosts, we have begun this day by asking the question, who is like our God? And when we take the time to consider that question, we remember that from the very beginning, you laid the foundation of the earth. You determined the precise measurements of the world. You formed the mountains and raised them up. You lowered every valley into the ground. You created the winds and they move at your beck and call. You make morning darkness and you turn deep darkness into morning. You command the clouds in the sky. They open up, at the, they open up their gates at your voice and they pour down rain to the land. You send forth lightnings and thunder upon the earth. You placed all the starry constellations in the sky. You know each one by name. You sustain all living creatures. Every human being is fearfully and wonderfully created by you. And with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, you have worked salvation for your people. There is no one like you, O Lord our God. And so I pray that you would, by your spirit, working through your word in the singing, the praying, the reading, and the preaching, correct and calibrate our distorted vision so that we might see you clearly in all of your beauty, all of your glory, all of your splendor, and all of your majesty. And as we see you for who you are, the one who is exalted above all other names in this world, cause our hearts to swell up with praise and worship you. O oh Lord, we are humbled because there is no one like you. Even though you are so great and mighty, even though you are so high and lifted up, you remembered our low estate. And you have not utterly forsaken your creation in all of our rebellion and sin. Rather, you've been patient and so long-suffering, more than fair, gracious and merciful, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. There is no one like you, O Lord our God. We are humbled, and we are also rejoicing as we remember the Challies family. We're rejoicing with them as Abby and Nate are getting married today. Thank you, Lord, for bringing these two together Thank you for their love for Christ and their desire to live lives that are pleasing to you. And we pray that you would bless this special day for them as, as the Challies family and many from our own church family are there in the States. Lord, as they make their vows to one another, help them to remember them and to keep them. And may their marriage be a beautiful and wonderful portrait of the gospel and the love of Christ that brings glory to you. There is no one like you, O Lord our God. We are humbled. We rejoice with those who are rejoicing, but we also weep with those who are weeping. Lord, we are saddened and broken when we consider the state of our world and all that's going on around us. We, we see the depravity of our world far away in places like the war in Ukraine, but we also see it close to home right around us. Oh, Lord, this morning we grieve over the news of the mass shooting in the supermarket in Buffalo that happened yesterday. We grieve over the loss of the 10 people who were killed in what is being identified as a racially motivated attack. Father, you know that right now there are some here who are particularly feeling broken by this display of utter depravity. 
there are hearts that are filled with sorrow mingled with anger. And the words of this prayer fall so short of expressing that hurt. But Lord, you see it all and know it all, don't you? And in your compassion and grace, you promise in your word to draw near to those who are broken, and you promise to bind up their open wounds. And so we ask in faith that you would please do that today for all of those who are hurting in our midst. We especially pray that you would do that for all the families of the victims who have lost loved ones in this brutal act of injustice. And may you reveal yourself to them as the God of all comfort, because that's who you are. And Lord, may you use the governing authorities sovereignly appointed by you to exercise true justice. May they rule over this incident with justice and do what is good and right. Oh Lord, all around us, we see the persistence of the sin of pride. We see its blinding effect. We see the depravity of our world and we pray, Lord, we pray, come Lord Jesus, come. Come and right every wrong. Come and bring about your perfect and flawless justice. We long for the day when you will take us home where there will be no more bad news to cry about and weep over. No more sorrow, no more grieving, no more pain, no more hurt, no more prayers of lament. Only unimaginable joy, bliss, and happiness. But Lord, your timing is perfect. And until that time comes, We pray, give us grace upon grace upon grace upon grace to stand firm and to trust in you. May what the psalmist said in Psalm 130 be our words when he said, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits in his word, I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. Lord, We wait for you. We hope in your word. Come and meet us and speak to us today. We pray these things in the precious name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. Friend, our hope is in the word of our God. So I want to invite you to take your Bible and now turn to Psalm or Mark chapter 14. This morning, I'm going to be reading from Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 22 all the way to verse 50. Our guest speaker is only going to be preaching a portion of that passage from verse 26 to 31, but I wanted to read just the greater context so that you would understand what's going on. This is um, the, the part in Mark's gospel where Jesus is in his passion narrative. The, the cross lay right before him, and everything that transpires in this text will take place right before he goes to the cross. So hear what Holy Scripture says, Mark chapter 14, verse 22. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. 
But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to them, Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. And they went to the place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled, and he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remember, remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you might not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priest and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. This is the word of the Lord. Well, now that Skim just took all my sermon time with the longest introduction in human history, um, I just want to say it's an absolute joy to be here with you guys. Um, both Gracie and I are very excited to be back. Uh, it's crazy to think that it's actually been three years on March 10th since we had the commissioning service here where you graciously sent us and also sent another, I think, 29 members from Grace Fellowship with us to go and revitalize rural York. And I just want to take this time uh, to say thank you. Um, that was a major sacrifice, not letting me go. That wasn't much of a sacrifice, but letting 29 members come with us. And on top of that, that first year, you supported um, Gracie and I financially, our salary for that whole first year. And um, we wouldn't have been able to do it without your support. Every time I think of Grace Fellowship, I think of Paul's words in Philippians 1, I thank my God and all my remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine for you, 
all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. That's how I feel about Grace Fellowship. We are partners in the gospel. And I just want to testify to you that God has been doing some wonderful things at Royal York. This past year, we got to baptize five people. And um, that wouldn't have happened if you hadn't been willing to think outside of Grace Fellowship and send people to Royal York and to see that work rebuilt. So I just want to give you thanks um, for all your efforts in partnering in the gospel. Well, I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Mark 14. Mark 14. I know Skim read the, I should say Steve. I call him Skim, sorry. Um, He read for you the context. So I'm just going to read uh, the few verses, 26 to 31 again, and then we'll, we'll dig right into the passage. Mark 14, verse 26. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Amen. Well, you've probably had the experience of being around someone who believed themselves to be good at something, but as a matter of fact, they weren't all that good. I remember back in the day when uh, American Idol was the big thing, and every so often you would get these horrible singers who would audition, truly believing that they were great singers. And cruel Simon Cowell would always have to break the news to them that they were awful, although he enjoyed it. Many of the singers didn't receive the news very well. They were convinced that Simon's evaluation of them was wrong. And one has to ask, how is it possible that someone could be so unaware of the reality that they can't sing? Well, in one sense, we know it's because they're tone, tone deaf. But the other fact is this. They're so prideful that even when experts in the music industry tell them they can't sing, they won't accept it as truth. Because that's what pride does. It prevents people from accepting the truth about themselves. And this is what we see in this short passage with Peter or with Jesus and his disciples. Now, Jesus here in these verses is, of course, predicting the future. This is a common theme in the Gospel of Mark, especially since Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. He predicted his death on three different occasions. He predicted that there would be a donkey um, that had not been ridden for him to use. He predicted the destruction of the temple and Jerusalem. He predicted the betrayal of Judas. And here, once again, Jesus makes several predictions. He predicts that all of the disciples will abandon him. He predicts his own resurrection, and he predicts in detail Peter's denying him. His predictions have made it quite plain that he has a knowledge of things that is more than human. 
He has a divine knowledge, which shouldn't surprise us since He is God incarnate. Now, that being said, there are three observations that I want us to see from this passage. So let me give them all to you up front, and then we'll look at them one by one. First, the blinding pride of Peter and the disciples. That's the first observation, the blinding pride of Peter and the disciples. Secondly, Jesus' humiliation and vindication. And thirdly, Jesus' restorative grace or mercy, his restorative grace or mercy. So first, the blinding pride of Peter and the disciples. Jesus has just finished the Passover meal with the disciples. He's predicted that one of his very own will betray him. He's radically transformed the Passover meal, demonstrating that he is, in fact, the Passover lamb who saves his people from their sins and establishes a new covenant in his blood. And after this meal, we're told that they sang a hymn and they made their way to the Mount of Olives. And it's here where Jesus informs them of some deeply startling news. He tells all of them that they will desert and abandon him. As verse 27 says, And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. He quotes from Zechariah 13.7, and in quoting this passage, he's making it clear that he's the shepherd, and the disciples are the sheep, and when the shepherd gets struck, they will all be scattered. That is, they will all fall away, abandon him. Now, it's no surprise that the first person to respond to Jesus' claim is Peter. He does that a lot. And he doesn't like what Jesus had claimed. In fact, he thinks Jesus is wrong. Skip verse 28 and look at verse 29. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. Now you have to think about what it is that Peter's implying in his response. On the one hand, he's claiming to be superior, stronger, more courageous, and more devoted than all the other disciples. If all the others fall away, Jesus, I won't. I'm not like them. And on the other hand, and this is probably even more shocking, he's claiming that Jesus is not just wrong about the future, but he's wrong about him. Jesus, you've just claimed that I'm going to abandon you, but you're wrong. You might be right about the other disciples, but not me. Now, of course, this isn't the first time that Peter has challenged Jesus If you remember in Mark 8, Peter confesses Jesus to be the Christ, the Messiah, and Jesus then begins to tell them that he's going to suffer and be killed, and Peter has the audacity to rebuke Jesus, and of course, Jesus responds to Peter's rebuke with his own rebuke, where he said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And here in Mark 14, Peter once again attempts to correct Jesus, just as he did in Mark 8, and just like in Mark 8, Jesus gives a response to Peter. Verse 30, and Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. Now you would think 
that Peter, at this moment, would realize that Jesus is really certain about this. I mean, Peter has seen Jesus do the miraculous. He's seen him raise the dead. He's, he's seen him cause the blind to see and the lame to walk. He's, he spoke of what the religious leaders were thinking, thinking, even though they hadn't spoken. He's predicted the future on several occasions. For goodness sake, he's the son of God. You would think that that would have been enough for Peter to humble himself and shut his mouth. But instead, he doubles down. Look at verse 31. But he said emphatically, that is with a level of forcefulness, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And then Mark gives us a little insight into what the other disciples were thinking. And they all said the same. They all said the same. See, even though the focus was on Peter, the other disciples were thinking the same way. They just weren't as bold or as intense as Peter. What's going on here? Well, here's what's going on. We're seeing in Peter and the other disciples the blinding power of the sin of pride. The blinding power of the sin of pride. You see, the reason why Peter tells Jesus he, he is wrong is because he truly believes that he's not capable of doing such an evil thing in abandoning and denying Jesus. He believes he's stronger, more courageous, more devoted, more self-sufficient than he actually is. And he and the other disciples are going to eat some humble pie. See, this is what the sin of pride does. It blinds us from seeing just how weak, fragile, and sinful we truly are. The disciples truly believe themselves to be better than they actually are. And just as Simon Cowell knows better than those delusional singers, so Jesus knows better than the, than the disciples just how weak and sinful they are. As Augustine says, God knows in us what we ourselves do not know in ourselves. For Peter did not know his weakness when he heard from the Lord that he would deny him three times. See, one of the things that Mark wants his readers to understand is that we, the readers, are supposed to see ourselves in the disciples which isn't always encouraging. We want to see ourselves in Jesus, but the reality is we're far more like the disciples. You see, the disciples are held up in the Gospel of Mark as a picture of what human beings are like apart from God's transforming mercy and grace. We see ignorance, unbelief, weakness, and pride. And pride. And here's the point. Just as Peter thought himself incapable of abandoning and denying Jesus, just as he thought himself better to, to be better than he actually was, so we think ourselves to be better than we actually are. Peter didn't understand just how weak and sinful he was because he was blinded by his pride, which was sin. We don't see it. We don't understand it. As Matthew Henry so eloquently said, it is bred in the bone of us to think well of ourselves. 
We don't understand how weak and sinful we are because of the pride in our lives. Now you might say, oh, but, but Peter, I, I believe in the doctrine of total depravity. I know how sinful I am. And I would say to you, you believe in that doctrine, good. But you still don't know experientially the totality of your own depravity. I would be concerned for any Christian who speaks with such boldness in believing that they would never deny Jesus. If one truly knows just how sinful one's heart is, then the only thing a Christian would dare say is something like, if not for the mercy of God, I too would deny Jesus. Lord, help me. See, I worry when I hear Christians say things like, I would never do that. I would never do that. How many husbands or wives at one point were convinced they would never commit adultery? And they did. How many professing Christians who said they would never deny Jesus, and they have? Our hearts are capable of the greatest evils. And if we haven't committed those evils, it's only because of the mercy of God. Pride makes us blind to the severity of our own sinful hearts. Pride makes us think that we are far better than we actually are. I mean, think about this. Peter was claiming to know the future better than the one who had planned the future. So blind was Peter about himself that he really believed he was better than the other disciples. That even if all of the other disciples will fall away, he wouldn't. I want to address something that I think is really relatable to what we see here. And this might sound defensive because I'm a pastor. But I'm speaking to you, it's not my church, so I can do it. I'm not here to defend myself, but I do want to defend pastors in general. Over the last two years, I have been deeply disturbed by the lack of respect and honor from Christians towards pastoral leadership and authority. Seeing Christians on the internet criticizing and mocking and calling pastors cowards and compromisers for their responses to government restrictions, when 95% of these Christians have no idea what's entailed with pastoring. And they have no idea of all the factors that have led pastors and elders to come to the conclusions they've come to, let alone they don't, they don't even know these pastors personally. And if I'm honest, it's greatly disturbing. There's a reason why the scriptures tell Christians not to bring a charge against an elder without two or three witnesses. And that's within the context of their own personal elders who they know. Yet it would seem totally fine for Christians to charge pastors who they don't even know as being cowards and compromisers. As if they're able to look into the heart of those pastors. And of course the assumption is, is that if I were in that position, I wouldn't be a compromiser and coward like them. In other words, you'd be like the Apostle Peter. Even if all these other pastors are cowards, I would not be if I was a pastor, Jesus. 
we so easily assume the best of ourselves and assume the worst in others. If over these last two years you've spent more time calling pastors cowards rather than getting on your knees and praying for them, you should repent. And then thank God that he didn't make you a pastor. (laughs) See, Peter thought he was better and stronger than the other disciples. And he thought Jesus was wrong in his words. See, I think Peter is a beautiful picture of the modern man. I think he captures so well how modern secular people relate to Jesus. Peter is offended at Jesus' words because Jesus is exposing Peter to the fact that he's not as morally upright as he thinks he is. And because of that, Peter rejects Jesus' words. His pride will not accept Jesus' words as truth. And I think this captures so well today why people are offended by Jesus' words and why so many reject him. Because Jesus' words completely confront and challenge the modern assumption and narrative of the goodness of human beings. Here's the assumption of our modern secular society. Human beings are inherently good and sometimes they make mistakes and do bad things. But Jesus reverses it. Humans are inherently evil and sometimes they do good things. In Matthew 7, Jesus, of course, is talking about prayer and he's telling the people that ask and it will be given to you and he, and he compares God to an earthly father that, that if an earthly father is asked by his child for something, he's not going to give him a snake if he asks for food, right? And then he says this, if you then who are evil Know how to give good gifts to your children. See that? He identifies them as evil, and then he says, but you can still give good gifts to your children. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? See, Jesus' assumption is not, oh, you're good and sometimes you have flaws, No, the assumption by Jesus is that you are flawed and sometimes you do good. In Mark 7, 20 to 23, Jesus gives this description about sin and where it comes from and and what all these kinds of sins, where where they flow out of. And this is what he says. What comes out of a person, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile the person. It wasn't your wife who made you do it. It was from within. That's not a description of a good person who sometimes does bad things. That's a description of the condition of the human heart apart from grace. This is the fundamental reason the doctrine of hell is so offensive to the modern mind. Because if you believe that humans are inherently good and sometimes make mistakes, then the doctrine of hell is completely unjustifiable, and they'd be right. 
But Jesus challenges that assumption and declares that humanity is evil, fallen, sinful, deserving of hell, and are in need of saving. As the Apostle Paul says in Romans 3, to 23, for there is no distinction that is between Jew or Gentile. In other words, the whole human race. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Or as he says even earlier in Romans 3, 9 to 12, what then, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, that is the whole human race, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Do you see the universal language there? Not one, no one, no one. All, all have turned away. No one does good, not even one. Jesus, just like with Peter, says to all of us, all of us, you're not as good as you think you are. I'm not as good as I think I am. Until you humble yourself and acknowledge that Jesus may be speaking the truth about you, you will never accept his words or accept him. Because the sin of pride will blind you from seeing and accepting the truth. Pride will keep you from receiving the words of Christ, just as pride kept Peter from accepting the words of Jesus. The disciples and Peter were truly convinced that they would never abandon nor deny Jesus, even if it meant their lives. But what happened? Well, verse 50 tells us, and they all left him and fled. And then Peter, in verse 66 And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, this man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him before the rooster crows, You will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. Just hours before this. Jesus, even if I am to die with you, I will not deny you. And a few hours later, I do not even know this man. Peter's pride kept him from seeing that he valued his own life more than Jesus. He denied Christ instead of denying himself, which was precisely what he claimed he would do, which was what he was supposed to do. He knew Jesus' words in Mark 8, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. See, there are a few verses that come to mind when I think of Peter's situation. 
Proverbs 16, 18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Or 1 Corinthians 10, 12, therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Brothers and sisters, pride has the power to blind us, but it also will cause us to resist the words of Jesus just as Peter resisted the words of Jesus. And so by the Spirit of God, we must wage war against pride in our lives. We must take a sledgehammer to the tower of pride in our lives. And part of the ways to do that is to have good friends who tell you the truth. Peter and the disciples reveal the blinding power of the sin of pride. Secondly, we see here Jesus' humiliation and vindication. And we see his humiliation in two ways. One, he's going to be abandoned by his closest friends. Men who have, for the last three years, spent almost every moment with him have hung on his every word, been amazed by his miracles, moved by his compassion. These men, his closest friends, really his only friends, will abandon him. He will know the humiliation of abandonment. His entire ministry, and specifically the end of his life, was an act of humiliation betrayed by his own, abandoned by his closest friends, his own people, the Jews, rejected him and then crucified him. He was completely abandoned. Our Savior knows the feeling and experience of abandonment. Some of us here this morning know this all too well as well. You may have been abandoned by friends, abandoned by a parent, abandoned by a spouse, abandoned by a child. Jesus knows and he understands the pain of abandonment. Our Savior is the abandoned Savior. This was a part of his humiliation. The second thing we see about his humiliation resides in these simple words in verse 27, I will strike the shepherd. I will strike the shepherd. This is at the heart of Jesus' humiliation. He will be struck. But the question we need to ask is, by who? Who is the I will strike? Well, who's speaking in Zechariah 13, 7? It's God. God will strike the shepherd. God will strike Jesus. God the Father will strike the incarnate Son of God. This striking is at the heart of the Christian faith. It is at the heart of Jesus' humiliation. In Jesus' humiliation, the Scriptures make clear that He was voluntarily laying down His life as a sacrificial offering for the sins of the world. That is, He was taking the punishment for our sins upon Himself. That punishment was the striking of God. This is precisely how Isaiah 53 describes it, which Patrick read for us. Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, just like the disciples. 
We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him, to strike him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, my servant make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. This is at the heart of the Christian faith. You can't understand Christianity if you don't understand this, that you and I were born into sin, that we are sinful creatures who have broken and defied God's moral law, his law which was for our good. We have broken his moral law, and because of this, we are guilty and deserving of being crushed by God, struck by God. That is, of being punished by God for our sins. Justice. Justice. God is just and he will not allow sin to go unpunished. You see, you ought not fear breaking the law of the woke. You ought to fear breaking the law of God. But God also is a God full of mercy. And he sent his only son, the great shepherd, Jesus, to stand in our place and to bear the punishment for us. That is, he was struck by God so that we would not be. He bore the curse so that we would not be cursed but blessed. This was his humiliation, and it was all voluntary. He laid down his life for our sins. He was willingly struck on our behalf, and Christ calls all men and women to repent of their sins and to believe upon him for the forgiveness of their sins. This is at the heart of the Christian faith, and Jesus being struck was at the center of his humiliation. As Paul describes in Philippians 2, 6 to 8, this beautiful description of Jesus' humility, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He was struck. Here in these short verses, we see the humiliation of Christ in both his abandonment and in his being struck by God. But we also see his vindication. And you see this alluded to in verse 28. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. It's subtle, but in these words, Jesus is speaking of his victory, his vindication. The story doesn't end with him being struck, but because he was willing to be struck, God saw it fit that Jesus would rise from the dead and receive his vindication. As the rest of Philippians 2, 9 to 11 says, therefore God, therefore in light of his humiliation, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
or Romans 1, 3 to 4, Jesus, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared, declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness. How? By his resurrection from the dead. God saw it that through the resurrection, Jesus would be declared, that is, pronounced as the one who is truly the Son of God. It was his vindication. You see, Jesus makes it clear to his disciples that he's going to be struck and that they will abandon him, but the story doesn't end like that. The story ends, or should I say, it begins with his resurrection. Jesus knew that he'd be abandoned and struck, but he also knew that he'd be raised. He knew his humiliation would precede his exaltation. And this, friends, is why Jesus was able to endure his voluntary humiliation, because he knew it ended in his vindication. This is precisely why the the writer of Hebrews calls followers of Jesus to endure because Christ endured his humiliation, which resulted in his exaltation. As we read in verse 1 to 2 of Hebrews 12, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame of the cross, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Now you might say, oh Peter, Jesus was able to endure because he he knew the future. He knew that his resurrection was coming. I don't know the future. But you do know the future. You might not know the details of your everyday future experience. But Jesus has told you the future. He has revealed what awaits every redeemed disciple of his who endures humiliation in this life. Romans 8, 16 to 17, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified in him. That's your end, that you and I would be glorified with him, that we would be fellow heirs with Christ. See, we too will experience the vindication and glorification of Christ. In these verses, Jesus conveys to his disciples both his humiliation and his vindication. Lastly, we see here Jesus' restorative mercy. Jesus' restorative mercy. (coughs) Sorry. You can so easily miss this. But in these verses, Jesus reveals that despite his disciples abandoning him and Peter denying him three times, in his mercy, he's going to restore them to fellowship with him and then commission them to be his ambassadors. And you see this in the simple words of verse 28. I will go before you to Galilee. I will go before you to Galilee. Despite the disciples abandoning him, despite Peter denying him three times, Jesus with these words demonstrates that in his mercy, he's going to restore them to fellowship and commission them for ministry. What's in Galilee? 
well, it's the place where Jesus will commission his disciples to make disciples of all nations. Matthew 28, 16 to 20, now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them, and when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. If that's not mercy, I don't know what is. You see, it's one thing to forgive them. It's a whole other thing for him to commission them to be his ambassadors. I mean, have you ever thought about this? That Jesus, in establishing the church, the body of Christ, the household of God, he placed as the foundation of the church ten men who abandoned him and one who denied him three times. And the one who denied him three times became the most important of them all. The two most important apostles in the book of Acts was a man who denied Christ three times and a man who persecuted the church, the apostle Paul. If that's not mercy, I don't know what is. They received his mercy. They were restored by his mercy. And they were used for the glory of God because of his mercy. And because these men who once abandoned Jesus were recipients of his mercy, each of them later suffered and died for Jesus. You know what this tells me? No matter how horrifying evil, no matter how horrifying or evil your sin may be, there is a fountain of mercy if only you would drink from it. But you might say, oh, but Peter, you don't know what I've done. No, I don't. But it's probably worse than I think. But Jesus does know. And if all your sin were to be the same amount as the body of water in Lake Superior, then know that Christ's mercy would be more than both the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans combined. Our sins may be many. They may even be awful. But his mercy is more. Christ has a restoring mercy even for those who deny him three times. There is a restoring mercy for you if you would but drink of his mercy. See, I have no doubt that Peter often looked back on this night and reminded himself that he was this close, this close to becoming a Judas if not for the mercy of Jesus. Now one last thing I want us to think about and it's related to Christ's mercy. There's a sweet comfort in knowing that Jesus knows our sins of tomorrow and yet he has mercy for our sins of tomorrow. Jesus knew that the disciples were going to sin. He knew that Peter would deny him three times. And he knows how each of us are going to sin this afternoon, tomorrow, and ten years from now. And my question is, 
If Jesus knows the disciples would abandon him and Peter would deny him, why didn't he stop it from happening? I mean, he has the power to, doesn't he? So why would he let them sin? Have you ever wondered that? Well, there's a few ideas that come to mind. First, in the Gospel of Mark, there's a clear theme that everything that is happening is so that the Scriptures might be fulfilled. Jesus is making sure that the will of God will be done. But I also think there's other things. I think Jesus allowed this to happen so that his disciples would be humbled and prepared for ministry. If the disciples had not abandoned Jesus, if Peter had not denied Jesus, they would have continued to pridefully think that they were better than they actually were. You see, sometimes Christ in his infinite wisdom and purposes will allow us to feel and taste the sinfulness of our own hearts so that we might be humbled and placed in a position to receive his mercy. The disciples needed to learn that. They needed to realize that they weren't as strong and as good as they thought. The other reason is this, simply this, Jesus delights to shower us in his mercy. I truly believe that Christ will allow us to taste the bitterness of our own sin in order for us to taste the sweetness of his mercy. These events were necessary, necessary for the disciples and Peter to marvel at the mercy of Christ and to become the disciples that Jesus intended them to become. Jesus has a restorative mercy. Come and drink of his mercy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that though we are weak, Christ is strong. That though we are sinful, Christ is pure and spotless. That though we are harsh, Christ is merciful. And I pray, Lord, that each of us here this morning would live in light of the incredible mercy that we have in Jesus. And that if there's anyone here who still has not tasted of that mercy, that by your mercy, God, they would know and taste the sweetness of the mercy that you have given in Jesus. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.